So let's hear then God's word, Titus 1, beginning in verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths may be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <clears throat> Amen. Well, um, if you do have one of those outlines, we uh, certainly now proceed from a su- <clears throat> the first main subsection uh, here now to the next, and you can see how they fit together so well. Uh, we, of course, started with the opening greeting in verses 1 to 4, uh, where Paul uh, obviously introduces himself. He Uh, addresses Titus, pronounces the benediction there on him, and uh, then basically, you could say, gives us a description of the work of an apostle. Well, then we saw in verses 5 to 9, and Paul then giving Titus these various tasks in order uh, to order the churches in Crete. Uh, Most likely, Paul uh, had to leave earlier than intended, um, But whatever the case, the churches can't stand on their own yet. And so Paul then delegates Titus to finish the tasks that needed to be done. And the first and probably most important task for him to do is to appoint elders in every church. And so we've seen that in verses 6 to 9. And so Paul gives qualifications uh, and duties here for the elders. They need to be older and wiser and experienced men who will oversee the flock and who will manage God's house. Now, normally, they are going to be married with children, and so they must be a good husband and father. Uh, They must avoid, you might say, the common sins of life and not be able to be convicted or or, uh, charged and then convicted and, and such in, in any of these sinful behaviors. They must be blameless in these things. And then as we saw in verse 8, especially, they must live a godly life. And in verse 9, they must be able to teach. And so Paul ends with the elders who are able to teach and exhort, if you will, the positive aspect of things. Uh, but they also need to be able to rebuke those who contradict And so Paul now builds on this and speaks about the false teachers uh, so that these elders will be able to rebuke them and therefore guard the flock. So not surprisingly then, verse 10 begins with four. So he's tying it together. And the reason why you need to exhort and convict those who contradict is because there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. 
And notice they're not just a few. There are many, he says. Okay? There are many who are against the word. The word contradict literally means anti-word. They are against the word, against the truth. Well, Paul now calls them insubordinate. They are rebellious. False teaching is really an act of defiance. It's not just an error. It's not just having a wrong thought. It's really, in the end, an act of defying what God has said. It is rebellious. It is uh, undisciplined, you might say. And they're just not being subject to authority. And I remember back in verse 6, we had the same word. <clears throat> Children who act this way, right? their fathers really should not be elders. Uh, but here then, uh, he's applying it broadly to the false teachers. So, on the one hand, you could say they don't want to submit to Paul. Paul has been teaching them. He's been planning the church, and they don't want to listen. Uh, on the other hand, you could say they're not submitting to Paul's message, the apostolic message, something that is bigger than Paul, you might say. But in the end, again, all false teaching, in the end, is a rebellion against God. We do not want to submit to what his word says in one way or another. Now, all churches, I think, throughout history have experienced this in one way or another. Some seems like it's, it's a constant problem, but uh, others maybe not so much. But I, uh, I think it's safe to say that all churches have experienced, to some degree, people who do not want to listen. They don't want to listen to the elders. They don't want to listen to <clears throat> the, the teaching of the truth. And ultimately, they don't want to listen to God. We can think of it in this way as well. When the flock holds to a particular false teaching, okay, whatever it is. Okay, we were talking earlier um, at lunchtime about Arminianism okay, and uh, some of the Mennonite teachings and so forth. And you know, if you're holding on to something that is false, that is inherently an act of rebellion. And uh, the, the, the challenge here is, so many of them think that they're believing what is right, <laughs> and they're not necessarily being deceptive, but some definitely are, and in the end, uh, it is an act of rebellion. And there are many, as Paul says here. If we, we think about this in our day, um, it seems like everywhere you turn, you run into a false uh, idea, whether in our culture or in particular in the church. There's so many that even John MacArthur, as I've said before, says the evangelical church has now died. There's so much false teaching there. Uh, Vody Bauckham doesn't go quite as far, but he's saying that the church is about to collapse. Now, they're focusing, of course, on the critical theories, but you can add much more than that. As you know, Nathaniel goes to Wheaton, and he has constantly bombarded with unbiblical ideas in class, with uh, his classmates, and so forth. Some of them have ended up in the Catholic Church. Others uh, have gone to um, the Orthodox Church and so forth. And some of them grew up in the PCA. Um, and, and so he's, he's constantly being bombarded with these things. And so I think it is probably safe to say that the evangelical churches, if it isn't dead, it's, it's close to it. Now, Reformed churches are, generally speaking, better, um, 
but we have our own problems. <laughs> and increasingly, more and more people in Reformed churches are contradicting the truth. Okay? And I've tried to bring up some of those things over the years, whether it's the top-heavy position in the PCA now, more and more, or the Federal Vision, or Gospel-Centered Things, or now we've been dealing with um, the revoice issues and Side B, and, uh, and now, of course, the CRT in the church. But Paul is saying, look, there are many that are teaching things that are not right, and so we must oppose them. We must contradict them. This is certainly true for elders in the church, but it is something that we must do in our homes. It's something we must do in the Sunday school classes. We must do it in all kinds of, uh, of capacities. So we must teach the truth, and we must oppose those who say differently. Okay? But remember, in the end, there is a, an underlying act of rebellion on those who are teaching differently. Um, well, next he calls them idle talkers and deceivers. Now, when we think of idle, you think of someone just sitting around, and um, that may not be totally unrelated, but the idea here has more to do with emptiness. It is empty. It is foolish. It is vain. It is void of truth. Their talk really has no substance. They're a prattler or babbler or a blabbermouth or just simply a talker <laughs> okay they may sound impressive they may sound uh spiritual <clears throat> but there's nothing there um i know i've talked to some of you about this i don't recall if i've mentioned this from the pulpit but it was i don't know a couple summers ago or something we were visiting a church when we were on vacation and the particular speaker was uh Saying all the right buzzwords, you might say. It, it sounded good, but there was no substance there. It was very hollow. And, and, and I, I found what was most concerning is people afterwards saying, that was a great sermon, and so on. And I'm like, he didn't really say anything. He just used all the right words. Um, and so Paul is saying, it, we, we need to be careful here. It isn't just the obvious false teaching sometimes it uses biblical terminology and so forth but in the end the words are vain and it is contrary to the truth let's turn a moment to second timothy just back a couple pages here in chapter two second timothy two and if you look at verse 14 he says similarly here <clears throat> Uh, remind them of these things charging them before the lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Okay. Paul ran into this in, at the Areopagus, didn't he? Lots of words being spoken, but it really made no difference. Okay. And so we, we certainly see that uh, today as well. Now, he combines this with the word deceiver. And so the words are idle, they're empty, they're vain, and, and yet they mislead. Hey, they cause other people to doubt. A rather popular word right now to describe this is gaslighting. Um, it has to do with manipulating people. Uh, in a sense, it's brainwashing. You, you, you tell someone something, but then you, you kind of say it in a way to cause them to doubt themselves so that you can manipulate them. And so maybe you can do this to 
um, get them to doubt their memories or their understanding of a particular event or something like that. But uh, that the idea here simply is, well, yeah, okay, you know, you read the Bible, and, 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 and Titus says here in chapter 1, verse 10, that, you know, many are insubordinate, but then they kind of start twisting it and make it mean the opposite of what it says. And unfortunately, we see this uh, throughout history. The Talmud has many places where the, the Jews took a biblical passage, and by the time you're at their conclusion, they've basically ignored what the the text says. And so Jesus addressed some of that. Um, you know, you, you take this idea of Corbin and, and you've, in the end, uh, uh, done away with the fifth commandment. Um, and so we, of course, experience this on a daily basis with the media. They do it all the time with all kinds of events. And it isn't just the liberal media. Even Fox News will do this. Pay attention. The progressives on both sides will gaslight, and they are deceiving. They are misleading, just so that you will vote for them or you know whatever it is, okay. and they do it intentionally. Now, some people are very—I um, don't know if innocent is the right way of putting it—but there are some people who think they are doing what is right, even though it is wrong. But some people do it quite intentionally to deceive. The hard part, of course, is you mix truth with error. Okay, so it sounds good. So in our culture here, for the last 125 years especially, we have been sold a moral argument that says that socialism is good. Okay, and it's worked quite well. It's loving for us, right, to ensure that everyone has the same amount of money, the same outcome. And this then justifies stealing. This justifies the use of force and so forth. Okay? But as you move into the church, the evangelical left can be very compelling. They give biblical arguments for some of these things, not just a moral argument, but a biblical argument for globalism or paying reparations or voting against pro-life bills. Okay? I just, of course, mentioned Nathaniel, and this has been a real challenge for him. We knew going in he would end up in some place to learn about music composition that would be hostile to the truth. And we were excited in one sense that he would go to Wheaton, but the more we learned about where Wheaton was, we're like, this in some ways is going to be even worse than going to a secular school. So we, we tried to prepare him to be able to think discerningly about biblical arguments to justify something that is wrong. And so just because someone quotes a chapter and verse doesn't mean that they're telling you the truth. Elders must be able to, if you will, weed through all of that to get to the truth, to teach the truth of the flock and oppose those who do differently. And even bigger than that, right, we all as Christians need to do that to some degree. Elders certainly can help, but we all need to be discerning. Again, Paul says there are many who do this. All right, now, <clears throat> he emphasizes here in the last verse the circumcision, okay, especially those of the circumcision. Now, this, of course, has raised some questions. What does he mean? Circumcision obviously is referring to Jews, but what kind of Jew, you might say? Maybe he's just simply referring to the Jews who lived on Crete, and there was a sizable uh, community that lived there on Crete, 
And Paul surely went to their synagogues to preach the gospel and so forth, and some people came to faith. Um, the Jews have their false teaching. We'll see more of that in verses 14 and 15 especially. Uh, obviously, Jews didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, so that in and of itself is false. Um, and so some will say that's all we're talking about. Others will say that Paul here is referring to the Judaizers, to those of the circumcision um, who did accept Jesus as the Messiah, but who insisted that Gentiles had to become Jews before they could fully become a Christian. A full Israelite is someone who is circumcised, who keeps the various laws of Moses, and so forth. Okay. Essentially, Gentiles had to become proselytes. And so, again, there's a debate here of how to understand this. I'm inclined to agree with those that uh, would say that Paul is probably talking about the Judaizers here. Um, but again, we'll see more of this in verses 14 and 15. Let's turn a moment to Acts chapter 15. And here at the uh, Jerusalem Council, uh, this, of course, was uh, the key issue in Acts 15, note, I'll just highlight a couple things here in verse 1. Okay, Paul is um, in Antioch after the first missionary journey, right? He's returned. And so in verse 1 it says, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Right? So Gentiles have to be circumcised right, to be a full Christian. And, of course, Paul and Barnabas went nuts over this. No, right? No small dissension and dispute. So they go down to Jerusalem to talk about this. And in verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So um, again, Paul's probably dealing with this on Crete. And he's telling Titus, look, you need to be able to speak against those who would teach these things. Let's turn also a moment to Galatians chapter 6. Uh, you recall that uh, Paul went on his first missionary journey and then wrote the book of Galatians before the Jerusalem Council. And note what he says. Galatians 6, and if you look down at verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. And Paul continues. But uh, this is one of the key issues here in the book of Galatians. Well, as we think about this issue of Judaizing, uh, we are uh, far enough removed historically from this situation that we, we don't deal with it in quite the same way. But we do have people who say that if we keep the feasts of the Old Covenant, or if we don't eat bacon for breakfast, or uh, something to that effect, then uh, these things are necessary for us to keep in order to be a Christian, even for Gentiles. Well, that goes too far. There are others who would say that learning more about Old Testament law to help us better understand Christ and the truth, and that's as far as they go, well, that's fine. But there are some who cross the line who say that it has to happen 
for us to be a true believer, or at least a mature one. So I'm going to leave it at that for now, because we're going to come back to some of these things in verse 14. Um, But uh, Paul, uh, at, at least at first here in verse 10, calls attention to these Jews. He's going to talk about the Cretans in uh, verse 12, but at least this, this is where he begins. All right, well, let's continue then into verse 11. Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. All right, this is serious, right? They must be stopped. It isn't just a difference of opinion. It isn't just, oh, well, you know, they're just a little off base here. and you know, no, They must be stopped. The word here uh, for stop is the idea of silencing or even muzzling an animal. But the question then, of course, is how do we do this? You read passages like this, and, and it sounds like we should you know, just physically force them to stop. You know, punch them in the mouth or... Throw them in jail or, you know, whatever. Well, <clears throat> we make a careful distinction here. We say, because we think that's what the Bible is teaching us here, of course, that the church is ministerial, not magisterial. All right, S- simply, the church focuses on ministering, not showing uh, the authority like the magistrate. Okay, so we are not magisterial. We are not saying stop the false teacher by throwing them into prison or executing them or something to that effect. <clears throat> no, we are ministerial. We are declaring the truth. You stop the truth with the sword of the spirit, not the sword in the hand. Okay, so we use the truth to stop what is false. And so Paul doesn't elaborate on that here. But as you bring in these other things, like Ephesians 6, right, we, we are to approach it in this way. So in the church, how do you stop false teaching? Well, you begin by rebuking the person who is teaching what is wrong. And if they don't listen, then you go the next step and so forth. Eventually, you can kick them out of the church. But you're not going to throw them in jail. You're not going to call the police. Okay? We're not magisterial. We're not using the magistrate. And so we do not use force, we do not harm the person, but we basically try to get them to stop in these ministerial ways. And so we seek to prevent them from teaching error in order to protect the flock. And of course, hopefully, they'll come to their senses and, and change their understanding and so forth. And so as we use the word of God, as we use the truth, this then will right, take everything captive to Christ. Now Paul then says that this has gotten so serious. Not only are there many, not only must they be stopped, but they're subverting whole households. And so again, this is not a minor problem. They are subverting, they're overturning, they're upsetting. You could even translate the word as ruin or destroy. And so, again, not a minor issue, but Paul's saying we we must deal with this. Titus, teach these elders to do this. Because these people are undermining 
the authority structure. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> part of this is likely because churches met in homes at the time. Okay? And so if you're going to meet in somebody's home and you've got false teachers that come in, right? obviously this is going to uh, create a big problem. Um, but let's also uh, turn back to 1 Timothy here just a moment, chapter 4. And this um, probably is anticipating verse 14 in Titus 1. Uh, but in 1 Timothy 4, uh, notice uh, the first few verses here. Verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. All right, so this isn't just somebody who has a wrong idea, right? This is serious. And then know what he says in verse 3, Forbidding to marry... And commanding to abstain from foods which God created, and he continues. The question here is, how much of this issue in Ephesus is taking place in Crete? Are these words to Timothy what Paul has in mind here as he speaks to Titus? We don't know for sure. But it is certainly a possibility that these false teachers were, were going into homes and saying... Either you can't be married or you need to break your marriage. Now, that may seem kind of extreme, but think about this. Remember what Paul had to deal with in Corinthians, and they're happening in Corinth, that if you have a couple who's already married and one of them comes to faith and the other one is still an unbeliever, what do you do? Should that believing spouse divorce the unbelieving spouse? Well, Paul says, no, you stay with that unbelieving spouse. Okay, now if they decide to leave, you treat them as they're dead. But if they want to stay together, then you stay together. You do not initiate divorce proceedings as a believer. Well, it is quite possible that the false teachers, even here in Crete, certainly in Ephesus, but in Crete, were saying something the opposite of Paul. Okay. The, the, the believing spouse, the unbelieving spouse, well, it's okay, believing spouse, to initiate divorce against your unbelieving spouse. We don't know for sure what Paul has in mind here, but something like this is certainly a possibility. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we're going to talk about older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves. We're going to talk about people in the house. And so the particular things that we're going to see in chapter 2 may be what he specifically has in mind, that these false teachers are going in and saying, okay, older women, you know, let's just get the rumor mill going. Now, they might not have put it that way, but that's really what they're doing. They may be saying, okay, younger ladies, let's, let's uphold the, the new Roman woman and, and, and assert your, your feministic ideas. We don't know exactly what happened here, but whatever was happening, it was undermining the home. And Paul says, Titus, train men in such a way that they will help prevent that from happening. You know, even today, when we meet in church buildings and not in homes, largely, of course, in our culture, uh, false teachers can still capture families. Hey, a false teacher may capture one person in the home, and that then can influence everybody else in the family. Okay? They might target the most gullible or the most uh, easily deceived. But 
You know, we don't even need people doing that anymore. All you need to do is turn on your TV. All you need is turn on the radio. And if you do not listen and watch discerningly, you are going to be captured by false teachers. Okay? And it isn't just in the media, of course, though it includes that. Okay? If you're watching the so-called benign weather channel, be careful. They're going to capture you with false ideas. It's not Mother Nature who had a bad day in Southern California here, was it last week or whatever. But that's what they're telling you. That's not right. That's false teaching. God sent those storms. So, you know, it's much easier for families to be undermined in our culture today than even just 100 years ago. It's not that there wasn't false teaching then, but we just have everything, all this filth and falseness coming into our homes on our smartphones and our computers and so on and so forth. You know, we come here for an hour on Sunday or maybe three hours, but uh, probably many of us listen to podcasts or the radio for many more hours than we spend here in church. And if you are not discerning, it can destroy your faith. It can lead you down wrong paths. It can upset and subvert your home. And so we need to be very careful. And, you know, think about it this way. We, we come here. We've got what? A rather bland place. We've got cement blocks for walls. You know, you turn on the TV and the televangelist, I mean, you've got an incredible light show and this wonderful band and you've got all this excitement and, I mean, it's very enticing, isn't it? Ours is kind of boring in comparison. And so it can be very easy to be persuaded and manipulated in these ways. Now, if we go outside of the church, at least in a sense, what I'm thinking here is uh, for the last couple years, not quite as much in the last 6 to 12 months, but for a couple years there, we were bombarded that we have to accept the Black Lives Matter movement. And if you don't, you're a racist. And these ideas came into the church. Well, if you have any sense about you, you just doesn't take much research to realize that the Black Lives Matter movement is Marxist in its origin, and they specifically are trying to undermine the family. They'll tell you that. And yet, so many professing believers say, yeah, we need to support them, and so on and so forth. You get the point. There's false teaching all around us. And and here in this particular point, how it impacts our families is, is so significant. Okay, this is why we've not sent our children to the public schools. Okay, this is why we've homeschooled and Christian school. But even at the Christian school, we're, we're trying to um, counteract some things that aren't quite as good. Okay. And so, <clears throat> Paul is saying, Titus, even Timothy, hey, elders, right, we must speak against People who mislead. Those who come into our church buildings, the ideas that come into our church buildings, but even we should try to instruct people so that when they are at home, when they're somewhere else, they can think critically. So we should speak against the Joel Osteens of the world. 
or the errors of the praise and worship doctrines or, you know, whatever it is. This is a huge challenge in our culture because there are so many outside influences. Now, as I've said here a couple times tonight, some people are, are very sincere about what they believe. It's wrong, but they're very sincere. They think it's right. Okay. But there are some who intentionally deceive and they know it. Consciously, they think about it. And they teach things for gain, as Paul says here. They're doing it for dishonest gain. Now, the Cretans were known for their greed. And we'll talk about some of that in verse 12, for example. Uh, but uh, don't we live in Crete to some degree today? When you turn on the televangelist or you turn on the radio or whatever, and they uh, send me your love gift. And some of them are just greedy. They just want money. As I came to this part, I was reminded of... Uh, Maybe you heard the story of Benny Hinn here a few years ago. I don't know, maybe five or ten years ago now. And, and there was this big uh, public uh, uproar about his Ferraris and his you know, really fancy cars and so forth. And so I decided to look it up. And, and this study was done in 2019. And of the top ten richest pastors in America, he's number four, valued at about $50 million dollars. Now, in my view, I do not see him as a sincere man. I may be wrong. Hopefully, I am wrong. But I do not see that. I do not see a godly man. I, certainly, he is wrong theologically in a variety of ways. But I also see him as being uh, more interested in the money than anything else. Now, the tenth person on this list is Franklin Graham. He drives a Bentley, actually. And as an airplane, is worth about $15 million. But I do see him as a faithful, godly man who is sincere and uses the money that God has given through his ministries to help minister to others, not just build up his wealth. He has an airplane because he goes all over the world to help people, not because he's living in the lap of luxury. Um, Kenneth Copeland actually is first on this list with $265 million worth. But, you know, it isn't just those who make mega millions. But, you know, when preachers preach in such a way to fill the pews, is it really much different? If you're going to preach a fluffy sermon just to get people in the door, um, you're probably going to have more money to take home. If you teach the truth, that may not necessarily happen. And so it isn't just the televangelists we have to be aware of. We need to be aware of the pastors in our local churches who are not preaching the truth, and they're doing it for dishonest gain. It, they may not make millions, but maybe they'll make six figures or whatever it is so that they can live comfortably. Paul, of course, here is, is instructing us. He's instructing Titus. To hold on to the scriptures, to hold on to the right understanding of it. If you don't, it will end in destruction. If you don't, the flock will be taken over. And we must expose the errors of these false teachers. We need good elders to help in this way. And one of the 
things we have to do is just be aware of what's false so that you can speak against it. So here are a few thoughts tonight from this uh, section, and uh, Lord willing, next time we'll continue. Um, Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for your word and that you give us what is true. Uh, It it really isn't all that complicated or confusing, Um, pretty straightforward. If we would but humble ourselves and hear what you say. Lord, we, we do pray that you would help all of us, but you'd especially help uh, the leaders here in the church to, uh, to follow in the footsteps of Paul and Titus here in this way, that we would know what is true and that we would live by it, but then we would also teach what is true and also then oppose those who would teach differently. We've had false teachings come into our congregation in the last 20 years since I've been here. And, and, and we need to make sure that we are preaching and teaching against it so that your flock is preserved. Unfortunately, some of those false teachings um, have created some problems. Thankfully, some of those false teachings have left. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to preserve what is true, to preserve your people in this way. We ask for your mercies. We ask for your strength. And that uh, we would not just be mean, uh, but that we would be discerning for the sake of um, your people and for your name. And so we pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.